Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Balabanlar, author of the book, The Emperor Jahan Gir, Power and Kingship in Mughal India. Lisa, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Mark. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a scholar of uh, kind of Islamic kingship especially as it resides in the Turco-Mongol community. So it's kind of an odd angle from which to approach India. But of course, the Mughals were um, Central Asian Turkish uh, descendants. Uh, So that pulled me into the South Asian uh, studies, uh, where I've been ever since, very happily. Uh, I teach at Rice University in Houston, Texas. And... um, Further things can I add? Um, <laughs> well, what was it? Totally ensconced in my Texas world here. <laughs> well, I was wondering what was it that led you to uh, go from that focus upon uh, Turco uh, Islamic uh, kingship to doing a biography of one of the emperors of the Mughal dynasty? It, it's a bit circuitous, but there is a kind of intellectual logic to it. When I went to graduate school um, as a quite a, quite a bit older adult, my interest was in Ottoman history. Uh, I had lived in Turkey for years, I have family in Turkey. Uh, Ottoman history was very compelling. I started graduate school and spent several years studying the Ottomans, and I never quite found a niche. And then I began working with um, Stephen Dale, the, the great scholar who has published a couple of really nice books on Babur, the founder of the Mughal dynasty in India. He was a professor at Ohio State where I was doing my graduate program. And I became completely uh, drawn into that Central Asian, Northern Indian, Turkic world. So I moved from the Turks in Anatolia to the Turks in Central Asia and Northern India. And then, of course, under his influence, became completely enamored by the Mughal dynasty. They're a really unusual, fascinating group. I'm one of those very fortunate people who had that kind of intellectual epiphany where suddenly everything fell into place and I found what I was looking for. And one of the first projects he and I worked on together when when I switched my field from Ottomans to uh, West Asian Islamic world, which is basically what my area is considered, was that when you picked up the biography, the autobiography of Jahangir, and we did a close reading of it together, we would meet once a week and discuss what we'd been reading and read all the secondary literature around it as we went. And it was an extraordinary intellectual experience for me. Uh, to work so closely with him on this topic, um, I didn't 
use it as my dissertation topic, but I had always had in the back of my mind that once that book was published, Jahangir was waiting for me. I had published a few small articles on him. Um, So when the first book on imperial identity, which ties uh, Central Asian traditions and legacy to the formation of of a ruling identity for the Mughals in India, and how much that legacy is retained um, and continues to influence the behaviors of the Mughals at the royal court in India for generations. Uh, Once that book was finished, I could turn to Jahangir, uh, who had always kind of lived in my mind as as an interesting character and a personality who required a deeper examination. I definitely got that impression from your book because I was thinking as I was reading it how overshadowed he so often is. I mean, he's preceded by uh, Akbar, who's this incredibly uh, uh, dominant presence in, in, in Mughal history. And then you have his uh, consort, uh, Nur Jahan, who is, you know, gets a lot of attention uh, from uh, scholars and, 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 and popular historians uh, today. And, and then, of course, you have his uh, son, uh, Shah Jahan. And, and, and I especially like that last chapter where you talk about how uh, after his, uh, after Jahangir's death, how you get this, you know, spin that takes place that effectively diminishes him. That's why it's fascinating you chose him as a subject because you, you basically are saying that this is a person who, you know, by overlooking him, we, we really do him a, a, a disservice. Yeah, I think that's very true. I I certainly don't intend at any point to suggest that he is, um, you know, like a fabulous human being who doesn't make mistakes. He's very human, and I think that's one one of the things that makes him so compelling. He, uh, not uniquely in his dynasty, has written a memoir, which is really compelling and fabulous reading, This is a trend within the dynasty um, that makes it stand out within the Islamic world, but within early modern kingship, in fact, Uh, to have so many memoirs written within a particular ruling dynasty is so uh, exciting and unusual. In any case, he writes this fascinating memoir, and it's my sense that uh, for a variety of reasons, his reputation will be smeared and he will be marginalized because in many ways of the willingness within his memoir uh, to express human failing, to address the fact that he is a flawed individual, to describe his struggles with alcohol, to muse about his relationships with his sons and his father. I think it it made it uh, easy, I think, for people with their own agendas, political for the most part, uh, defending their own um, failures, perhaps in the mercantile world among Europeans, to identify him as a failed individual, as as deeply flawed, as uh, almost irrelevant, because he has given them this this entry into his thought processes and his uh, very human uh, nature. But that's what makes him compelling. He's not a perfect human being. He does not make the argument of being a perfect human being. And in fact, this is one of the uh, really complicated stories of his life. Um, 
you know, his father, Akbar the Great, who famously is making claims of, of divine kingship, uh, has, has really absorbed a lot of attention and, and becomes a kind of pivotal figure for Jahangir. Does Jahangir do the same? Does he not? And scholars play with this idea a great deal. There was a fabulous manuscript published in Iran about six or eight years ago, which really rocked the Mughal studies world. Uh, the Majlisi Jahangiri by Abdus Sattar, uh, who was a courtier at Jahangir's in his milieu, who wrote uh, about these organized uh, intellectual conversations uh, that were held at the court in the evenings in which these arguments about sacred kingship are, are being toyed with and, and articulated and defended. But ultimately, my argument is that even in the telling of Abdus Sattar, and certainly in Jahangir's own memoir, we realize that while he's tempted to emulate his father's model, he is so aware of his own flawed humanity that he never quite makes a commitment to claim that identity, which is why in his own memoir, he does not make uh, claims of sacred kingship at all. He avoids the subject completely. And when Abdus Sattar's three years uh, record finishes, Jahangir makes no effort to have a different courtier pick up the narrative or create a panegyric about him. He's willing to let that go. And he's such a compelling person for these reasons. You know, he just doesn't uh, quite commit to presenting himself as a perfect human being. He'd and, love to, but he doesn't. But then, of course, <laughs> then opens him up after his death to this depiction that we have of him of being, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, drunk, uh, you know, uh, an, an addict. Uh, he's he's, you know dissolute he's in and yet what you describe is is that he's actually a a very you know successful ruler he does things that even his father couldn't do right right i don't want to overstate that too much uh, because i don't think he's that interested in governance he wants to be a really good emperor there's no doubt he's really adept at dealing with relationships amongst the nobility the elites which is critically important because you know, we, we've had a tendency to describe these sorts of kings as being you know, absolute rulers. But in fact, their relationships with the nobility are, are tentative and negotiated and constantly having to be reinforced. Jahangir is really good at that. Um, he is able to defeat a few small kingdoms that Akbar was unable to defeat. Splendid. I don't think it's deeply meaningful, but it certainly was something he celebrated in particular because of this deeply competitive relationship he has with his father, obviously, famously. Um, so I think he was a much more competent ruler than he is considered to be in most of this scholarship until very recently. But the, the issue of his reputation, of course, is much more than his own willingness to accept imperfection. He was an admitted public uh, alcoholic and drug addict. He made no secret of it. In his own memoir, he describes in detail the creation of his addiction, 
uh, his dependence, his grappling with how much he could function given the degree of alcohol or opium that he was using. I mean, it's very explicit and unapologetic. Um, so, so he is a pro- he has these issues, he has these problems, but his son, Horam, who will become Shah Jahan, will go into rebellion in the period just before Jahangir's death. That rebellion is defeated. Jahangir will travel with his armies all across the region in order to defeat uh, Horam, Shah Jahan, who he calls Bidalet, he who is without fortune, the unlucky one, right? He, he's wonderfully kind of poetic in these moments in his memoir when he is uh, so frustrated and irritated by his son's rebellion. In any case, Jahangir will participate in this military campaign against his son. His son is defeated. But shortly afterwards, Jahangir will die. Uh, he's been in bad health on and off for some time. Uh, although functional, as I'm saying now, I'm leading an army, uh, uh, hunting daily, traveling regularly, and continuing these evening conversations. We have visitors to the royal court in those last two years of Jahangir's life who describe him pursuing these intellectual debates in the evening about the nature of God and religion. Uh, In any case, his son will inherit the throne, uh, the former rebel, and and take the regnal name Shah Jahan. Um, And then we see this uh, shift in the discourse at the royal court in which the chroniclers in an attempt, I argue, to justify Shah Jahan's former rebellion, to, to, to spin Jahangir as a failed ruler, as an incompetent, as a drunk, as someone overwhelmed by his intellectual and powerful wife, who was, in fact, a very powerful individual, Noor Jahan, to, to justify uh, Shah Jahan. And so the narrative is constructed in defense of the new king. The Europeans who are present in this period in India, and of course, mercantile activities really building, uh, especially from uh, the English, they too will create a narrative of Jahangir being an incompetent drunk. And again, I argue because of their own failure to... uh, control him or to impose their standards on him, he does not allow them to open up uh, uh, their trade uh, in a way that they would like it to be, right? They want monopolies on trade. He denies it. He uh, busticates. He, you know, he leads them on, but he never quite commits. In In a sense, we can see them as having failed Bitterly, and finding this justification for their failures repeats that same narrative of Jahangir being kind of overwhelmed by a powerful wife, overwhelmed by alcoholism, a lovely man, right? They all assert that he's actually very charming and very kind, um, but this allows them to walk away with some self-esteem. So all of these things together fuel this uh, reputation that's created right after his death. 
I was thinking not just repeat it, but magnify it in a way, because when you were talking about a non uh, South Asian audience where you have, you know, language issues, they're going to be much more reliant upon someone like, you know, Thomas Rowe's account than they will about some of the other narratives that are circulating. They're going to read that first before they get to anything that might introduce some sort of nuance or qualification. Absolutely right. And in fact, that will influence uh, Western scholarship on the Mughals really right up into right up to the, the current moment. There's been some great new scholarship in the last 10 or 15 years that pushes back. But, you know, until recently, one of the more uh, visible studies of Noor Jahan, for example, not Ruby Lal's darling new book on Noor Jahan, but a former book, um, relies so heavily on these Western accounts that the whole uh, understanding of motives and behaviors is skewed by these Western misrepresentations, misunderstandings, uh, and self-aggrandizements that uh, uh, deeply affected the way the West understood Mughal values. For example, uh, anything to do uh, with a with a harem in the Islamic world draws a, a a great deal of of interest and titillation in the West in that period. But right up to now, we can't pretend that you know that modern scholarship has been completely cleansed of these impulses to see it as somehow uh, decadent uh, to frame the women of the harem as manipulative actors. Uh, who are self-serving, right? all of those impulses are reflected in the writings of the Europeans in India in Jahangir's period in the early 17th century, but they will become so deeply embedded in the scholarship that we are only now stepping out of that influence and saying, you know, those, those Western writings tell us a lot more about Western culture, Western values, Western fears uh, and inadequacies and insecurities than they tell us about, in fact, the Islamic world. I was wondering if you could take us back a bit to Jahangir's uh, early life, his uh, his childhood growing up, uh, his accession to the throne. Um, what was his relationship with his father like, and what sort of preparation did he have for his responsibilities? Oh, it's fascinating, and I wish we had more sources talking about the childhoods of the princes. Uh, we know they were extremely well-educated, as were their sisters. Uh, education was highly valued in this community. It was an extremely literate dynasty. Uh, a great many authors and poets coming right out of the, the nobility and the aristocracy themselves, uh, but also uh, just profoundly uh, uh, driven to educate. So Jahangir and his two brothers would have been very highly educated people. Uh, they grew up at their father's court. And here we see some really interesting uh, changes occur. And this is something I actually address in my first book. Um, when we think about the succession system of the Mughals and how much it retains uh, a, a a reliance, uh, uh, 
to the earlier Mongol system of succession, which would make the argument that any male member of the dynasty uh, has an equal right to identify as uh, as sovereign. And so what we see is a series of succession wars with almost every generation through these Turco-Mongol dynasties. All of them will inherit this and all of them will find their own ways of modifying or, or uh, uh, changing it in one way or another. The Ottomans, the Safavids, the Uzbeks, the Mughals. The Mughals of all of them stay closer to the original model, which is to accept that all the sons of the emperor are, will be uh, trained uh, as a future emperor and could potentially take the throne. There is no primogenitor. There's no sense that the oldest son would automatically inherit it's a contest. So Jahangir and his brothers are going to grow up in this way, and it, it reduces their ability to be friends with each other, of course. They're rivals from their earliest childhood. Um, but they are all trained as future rulers. So Jahangir would have received all of that, including having gone to war with his uh, father's armies, training to uh, not only run a military campaign, not only to be highly educated, but to create really uh, close networks amongst the powerful uh, elites of northern India so that when his opportunity to take the throne might come, he would have a base of supporters and allies to support him. Each of the princes will be given this, this kind of networking opportunity and part of that is through their marriages. Here's another, I know I'm going off on a tangent, but I'm <laughs> fascinated by this one issue here, the issue of marriage, which is in many cases a political alliance to support these young princes as they develop their own power nodes. But the Timurid uh, predecessors to the Mughals and the Mughals themselves do not follow Islamic law regarding the numbers of marriages they can have, uh, they will marry many more than four women. And these are legitimate marriages, not concubinage, which is also present. So each time a prince marries and they begin marrying young, they have an opportunity to create new political networks for themselves. But because they're not limited to one, as a Christian king in the West might be, or four, as a legitimate Muslim king might be, because they marry as often as they choose, they can have multiple kinds of marriages, political and love matches. Anyway, that's a whole other topic, and that allows us to see the relationships Jahangir will later have with his wives, um, which are much more uh, broad and diverse than would be the norm. In any case, as a prince, he would have married into uh, powerful political networks. He highly educated, but we can see that the princes uh, are struggling to have a, uh, healthy relationships with each other and with their father. We don't know much, uh, but all three sons will become alcoholics uh, in young adulthood. Um, so it's hard not to see that as something as an indictment against Akbar's parenting, if nothing else. Yeah, there does uh, so, seem to be a lot of pressure yeah. involved at, at, uh, for them as they're uh, taking these roles at such a, an astonishingly young age. 
and how very quickly they, they find themselves turning to that, you know, release of, of, of substances, you know, drinking to, to, to try to, you know, and you don't, you don't make this, you know, too explicit, but you get the impression that, you know, they're doing it, you know, because of the strain. Yeah, I, although this is a, also a dynastic tradition, um, it, you know, as a historian, I like going back into deep time. Uh, so when I study the Mughals, I'm taking them all the way back through their uh, ancestry in what is now Uzbekistan, the Timurid heartland, and beyond that even to the early Mongol Empire, Genghis Khan, all of whom are their ancestors, and looking at the, at the common threads, one of which is alcoholism. If substance abuse is rife through these centuries, through these generations of Turco-Mongol kingship. Um, so I'm not an expert on, on the medical side of things, but I, I would say it is more than just stress. There is a kind of cultural continuity to it. Um, alcohol is perceived as a, an acceptable release, although they recognize, too, that it's not approved within Islamic law. Neither is marrying seven or nine or 11 <laughs> women, which they do. This is another thing that makes the Mughals so fascinating. They are so willing to openly bend the rules and find sovereignty and justification in other ways. Right? They look to their ancestry for legitimacy. They look to their uh, extraordinary kind of tolerance of others and, and a culture of synchronicity uh, for justification. And in any case, they, they do regularly and often just completely break all the rules. Uh, in any case, uh, Jahangir will grow up in this milieu. His father is a great intellectual not literate himself, but he has memorized, he seems to have had a great memory for literature. He's memorized Rumi's Masnavi. Uh, he surrounds himself with intellectuals. Uh, he's a great patron of the arts. And his sons are growing up in that milieu. And this is part of uh, the performance of legitimate kingship in the Persio-Islamic Turco-Mongol uh, community in which they thrive. I was thinking that another way you see that sort of that flexibility with the rules, shall we say, is with yeah. this recurrence of rebellions. I mean, you've talked about Haram's rebellion uh, at, at the end of uh, Jungir's reign, but his ascension to the throne is bookended by rebellions, one of which he himself initiates, and then one he yeah. faces soon after he takes the throne. It's really interesting, isn't it? And again, this is why we can return to those earlier Mongol models of succession to understand why there's this constant theme of princely rebellion, right? If every male member of the dynasty through that elite, you know, emperor's lineage has a, a, an inherent sovereignty, then the competition for the throne can be legitimized. So, uh, when Akbar had inherited, his younger half-brother was too young to be a threat, so he was able to take the throne of his father, Humayun, uh, without uh, sibling uh, uh, pushback, although uh, his brother, Mirza Muhammad Hakim, will go into rebellion later and try to seize part of the territory uh, and be defeated. So when Jahangir, uh, as a young adult, who is 
an alcoholic at this point, as are both of his brothers, who is serving as an arm of his father uh, militarily and politically, becomes restless and bored. Look, these guys are already adults now. They're in their mid to late 20s, and Akbar looks like he's going to live forever. Uh, He had inherited the throne very young. He will rule for 49 years, and he's still very young when he dies. And you can you can just sense the impatience of his sons at being under the thumb of this very powerful father who will never go away and leave them <laughs> to their own kind of independent destiny. And Jahangir, who claims later that he was listening to a lot of bad advice among his companions, who and who was struggling with almost out of control alcoholism, breaks into rebellion. Now here's Here's a really interesting thing. Uh, a really uh, good scholar of the Mughals, uh, Munis Faruqi, has written about uh, how the rebellions of the princes act to pull into the imperial circle otherwise disenfranchised or marginalized military and political elites in northern India. So when Jahangir goes into revolt, he will draw into his circle a lot of powerful actors who otherwise were not uh, uh, a part of the Mughal inner circle, who were not part of Akbar's court circle. They will ally with Jahangir because he represents the anti-Akbar. He'll end up with a massive rebel army marching on the capital, and eventually he'll seize territory uh, and establish a kind of independent state uh, in which he increasingly identifies as uh, the sovereign, right? He'll have coins minted in his name. He'll have chutzpah read in his name at the mosque, all of which are affirmations of of kingship. Um, And he will take uh, years. He will will remain in this independent, uh, antagonistic countercourt in Allahabad, um, I argue that he's not, in fact, attempting to overthrow Akbar. He's trying to seize a corner of the empire for his own independent action activities uh, in the model of his Turco-Mongol ancestors. He's well aware that he can't defeat Akbar. And what's also interesting is that Akbar does not, in fact, turn the weight of the Mughal military on his son. He allows Jahangir this kind of autonomous space, um, which is also something we can see uh, uh, is a legacy of this Turco-Mongol succession uh, history until finally with Jahangir's one brother having died from abuse of alcohol, his other brother failing badly. Uh, it's clear that Akbar recognizes that his only legitimate course is to pull Jahangir back into the family, into the royal court. And through a series of incidents, including the death of Akbar's mother, uh, with whom Jahangir was quite close, he manages to, to get Jahangir back to the royal court. Just really within the year before Akbar himself dies. So, so Jahangir finds himself very fortunately positioned in the center at that critical moment at his father's death. But at that point, his own son is his greatest 
uh, threat because his son Husrao is has his own circle of supporters who feel that Jahangir has made himself unacceptable as a future emperor and they would like to skip the generation. Jahangir will manage to work through that and take the throne, but within five months of his ascension, Khusrau and his supporters will go into rebellion. So a re- rebellion really does bookend Jahangir's reign. His own, his oldest son, Khusrau, uh, and then Khuram at the end, who will become Shah Jahan. And of course, Khusrau will be defeated um, and he is not killed. You know, the tradition uh, in many royal courts of the period was that um, to diminish rebellion or to, uh, to punish potential rebels, you would blind them. The Mughals don't involve, don't engage in a lot of disfigurement as punishment, especially amongst their princes. This is actually an article I'm working on at the moment <laughs> called The Sacrosanct Prince in which we can see how carefully they are physically protecting even rebellious princes, unless they're actually on the battlefield, at which point all bets are off. So these, these very reluctant negotiated punishments like blinding occur occasionally, but we don't see, for example, the Byzantine Empire, where we have cutting off of noses and ears, disfigurement that would immediately disqualify them from any public role in the future. Or the Ottomans, who are very quick to uh, get out rebels. We don't see that in the Mughal context. Um, So Khusrau is blinded. The blinding is partially reversed. He has some vision, and he will just remain at his father's court for the rest of his life um, in what seems to have been a very depressed state, uh, that drives Jahangir crazy. For some reason, he expects that this former rebel son, now partially blinded, is going to become a cheerful companion. And when that doesn't happen, he becomes really frustrated with him and eventually allows the third son, uh, Huram, to take possession of Khusrau. Huram is very ambitious. Uh, and Khusrau dies under his care. And there's suspicion about the death. And, of course, Quran will become uh, the next emperor, Shah Jahan. Mm-hmm. Now, when it comes to Jahangir's reign, you divide it in your book into these into these three uh, periods, which there's some overlap. They're, they're not you know, sharply defined periods. And, and you use them not just to describe Jahangir as emperor during these periods, but you also use them to look at how the the Mughal emperor uh, Emperorship worked. I thought your your this comes across most clearly in your chapter on Jahangir in Agra, where we talk about the court, you talk about uh, his uh, empire's relations with uh, the Uzbeks and the Safavids and, and and the Europeans. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that and, and, and talk about how did he function as emperor and and how and what were his relations like with his neighbors, his counterparts elsewhere. Right. Right. Uh, it's a very interesting uh, reign in some ways because we can see it as broken into sections. Um, that first block of time in which he is kind of sedentary in Agra is really when all of these relationships become stabilized. Uh, and then he expresses boredom, 
leaves Agra and for the remainder of his reign will will be a very peripatetic ruler. So we can talk about that later. But while he's in Agra and establishing himself, um, this is when these relationships uh, are being negotiated. So he's very dependent on his nobility's support, as are all rulers in this uh, moment. Um, but his neighbors are uh, also complicated. So within South Asia, his uh, he has some uh, military campaigns against Kangra, against Miwar, uh, some going on in Bengal. Uh, he's mostly victorious. These are relatively small campaigns. Um, his his real uh, nemesis, though, is going to be in the Deccan, and that is Malik Ambar, the Ethiopian slave soldier who has risen to become a general. Uh, leading the forces of Ahmed Nagar. This um, Dekhani region is Muslim. Uh, it's, it's interestingly influenced by and in some ways articulates ties to Iran. Many of them are Shia. Uh, the Mughals are, of course, Sunni Turks. Um, and so this Mughal effort to seize the Dekhan is, uh, is going to is a subtext through all of Mughal history, right? Then they'll never quite succeed. Aurangzeb, uh, Shah Jahan's son, will finally defeat them. But of course, uh, at that moment, the Mughal Empire is starting to fail um, and power will be lost pretty quickly. So Jahangir's regional uh, South Asian enemy is going to be Malik Ambar, who he defeats regularly, but never quite squashes. Uh, so the Dakani forces always manage to regroup and come back and undermine uh, the success of the Mughals. Uh, and I would say really the primary regional enemy of the emperor is going to be his sons. But the relationships with other major states are fascinating. And of course, I, I, you know, as a former Ottomanist, I um, would have liked to be able to make uh, a closer comparative conversation about the two empires, but in fact, they have very little to do with each other. Um, the Ottomans are massively important in this period, but that does not really uh, affect too dramatically uh, power relationships, uh, uh, political relationships in India. So uh, Jahangir essentially has no relationship with the Ottomans at all. His real fascination, horror, admiration, insecurity is driven by his relationship with the Safavids of Iran, who have a long history woven into early Mughal history um, that uh, allows them to, to frame the relationship as almost fraternal. They refer to each other as brothers, uh, but highly competitive, in particular because they're competing for Central Asian territory. Um, and they'll go back and forth. During Jahangir's reign, it's very exciting because Shah Abbas, you know, ruling over the golden age of Safavid Iran, he's older, he's more experienced than Jahangir, and he's very adept at manipulating Jahangir. But Jahangir learns early on not to trust him, although that fascination and interest remains. And they exchange lavish embassies 
which is one of the funnest parts of the uh, mogul documentation. We get these lists of gifts sent from Iran and then the list of gifts going to Iran from India with, you know, tamed animals and performers and jewels and, you know, horses carrying loads of silk and elephants. It's just an extraordinary uh, exchange that's taking place. The West, though, in a, in a very different position, is coming to Mughal India in this period as supplicants, not as powers. The Western uh, merchants are attempting to negotiate monopolies on trade within India, and they're not operating from a position of strength at all. Western Europe is not powerful. They're not producing goods that South Asian elites would like to purchase. So they're desperately trying to get a hold of luxury goods from the East, but they have very little negotiating power. So we see the first British ambassador to India arriving at Jahangir's court. This is Sir Thomas Rowe. And mortified, absolutely humiliated by his inability to compete on the same political stage as the Iranian ambassadors who are coming with all of these lavish gifts. Uh, so it, it's a it's a very interesting moment in history. Jahangir's reign uh, marks the beginnings of this British interest in India, but in a in a way that I think is counterintuitive for a lot of uh, students of Indian history, because we see the weakness, the real weakness of the British in this moment. Um, but it's also a, a, a period in which we see the kind of global ties, the global trade networks developing in a way that are broader than ever before. Jahangir talks about uh, the arrival of tobacco from North America uh, and the Caribbean into India in his lifetime. He also has a wonderful painting of a, a bird that was brought to his court, was very unusual. He describes it in detail in his memoir, describes ordering the painting made. We have the painting. And what bird is it but a North American turkey? Uh, so we, we have these wonderful small moments that confirm the kind of interconnectivity of this early modern global network. You mentioned already that uh, there's this period after uh, his he spent a few years in Agra, and then he becomes this itinerant monarch. And I thought it was very fascinating because you describe this procession of this magnificent entourage, and you describe yeah. the settings in which the uh, emperor uh, presided and, and performed. And I thought it really gave an interesting look at the the setting of of, of Mughal power or, or and, and imperial power in India during this time. I find it fascinating. Uh, and this is, to me, the most interesting part of Jahangir's rulership and his interest in kingship and power, that it becomes footloose. Uh, you know, he is the descendant of semi-nomadic rulers. And I think there is a kind of cultural memory or memorialization of that that is used to confirm ruling legitimacy, right? That as the descendant of Turco-Mongol emperors like Genghis Khan and Tamerlane, Timur, 
this performance of semi-nomadic kingship is an affirmation of their power. But with Jahangir, more than any of his other uh, uh, family members, descendants or predecessors, we recognize that he is simply enamored by the landscape and the peoples of South Asia. This, to me, makes him extraordinarily compelling as a character. He begins these travels after six years in Agra, and he actually writes in his memoir, I don't have much to do. I think I'm going to go do something else now, and I'll go pursue war against Miwar. So he heads out. Then, of course, he completely loses interest in pursuing war. He sends his son, Khoram, the future Shah Jahan, to manage that, and he just becomes itinerant. And uh, so, yes, his royal court progress, you know, we can think about this in the medieval European sense of this long train of people marching across the countryside. But in the context of Mughal India, it could be as many as 200,000 people based on many contemporary reports. It is inclusive of much of the army, as well as his own personal retinue. Uh, The Europeans who observe it are odd. Uh, And this is one of the ways I will, I do rely on Europeans because the Mughals themselves seem to have been so used to the site. There's very little written about it, but it's these outside observers who look and say, it's like a city moving in front of your eyes. It takes a day to watch the entire parade go by. And the encampment of the Mughals is very well organized, uh, uh, set up in a grid system, and the cities and the camps are structured in very much the same ways so that everyone within this milieu would know where to find who's, uh, and, uh, who's particular tent or who's particular cluster, where are the merchants, uh, right, where are the animals housed. It's, it's very tightly controlled and well-organized. The Europeans say it's like a glittering city. And you have to stand back at a distance to get the whole impact of it. Um, so uh, the, the, the emperor is spending most of his time in tents, which are very luxurious. Um, and even a two-story tent famously is constructed for the emperor himself so that he can have the viewing window on the second floor of the tent, uh, the Jaroka i Darshan to make himself visible to his subjects every morning. Yeah, that aspect of display I thought was very interesting, especially at a time when, you know, so many people are, you know, you don't have modern media. So for people to see the king, the king has to be seen. But you also talk, and I thought this was especially interesting, his engagement with hunting, because you talk about how it reflects this, it's it's a royal role to remove pests. It also, I thought, was it's a very personal examination because you see some of that addictive personality of his. I thought that especially when you describe how it was something that he had pledged to give up when he reached a certain age and how he kept finding justifications to keep going <laughs> with it. Yes. You know, he so clearly is a person who struggles with addiction. And, and you're right to say hunting is very much a marker of that addictive personality. He's obsessed with hunting. Again, this is acceptable in the milieu of the Mughals because it is a direct link backwards to the Turco-Mongol rulers before them. Um, 
it's completely legitimate for the king to spend every day hunting, which he will do uh, uh, in in lar- large blocks of his time, uh, in the, especially in the last uh, decade and a half of his life. Um, he he struggles to justify it. He finds ways of justifying it. He, you know, like Akbar, his father, he will set aside certain days for. Uh, you know, nonviolent hunting of all things, in which they're simply rounding up animals, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, letting them loose on their own private territories or something. Um, he hunts with cheetahs, trained cheetahs, who wear jeweled collars and are, in, in some cases, given the titles of nobility because they are such great hunters. Uh, he even even has a trained lion that hunts with him. Um, Hunting is very much a marker of kingship. Uh, uh, Thomas Olson, a great scholar who died recently, unfortunately, um, has written a wonderful book on the hunt called um, The Hunt in Eurasian History, I think. Oh, my God, I'm getting the title wrong. Something like that. Thomas Olson, A-L-L-S-E-N, wonderful scholar of the Mongols. and he talks about the universality of hunting as a performance of kingship throughout Europe and Asia, uh, and never more so than in the case of the Mughals. Again, we can think about performance and public display. I'm going to make the argument that uh, pretty much all kingship is founded on performance, and uh, certainly king uh, hunting is uh, a kind of ultimate example of the power of the king over wild nature, his ability to subject nature to his own control, to protect his, his peoples, um, and nothing more than hunting uh, tigers and lions uh, in terms of the king demonstrating his ability to protect his subjects, right? Mm-hmm. So Jahangir won't allow anyone else to hunt uh, a lion or a uh, you know, in his territories, they have to wait for him to arrive to take care of it much of the time. I mean, is it all possible? And uh, uh, he he guards this right jealously. This is a marker of his power as a king. And he only rarely allows others. It's a sign of great respect that he allows another to hunt lions. And of course, uh, one of those people he allows to have uh, to lead a hunt against lions is his wife. Nor Jahan, who is a known uh, talented hunter, and he delights in her ability to hunt lions with him, whereas he's deeply jealous of his own son's uh, efforts to hunt lions. So uh, it kind of frames his relationship with Nur Jahan in a very complex and interesting and nuanced way when we see how he positions her as this kind of imperial hunter, the sovereign hunter. Yeah, I, I thought that, that that jealousy came across uh, very well when you uh, describe how he gives his permission to hunt this tiger and he and Haram succeeds and he presents it to his uh, father. And his father's like, well, nice job, son. But as we could see, it's a little thin and a little short. Not the <laughs> tigers I killed. <laughs> oh, absolutely right. And this, this self-pitying... Uh, competitive personality shows up again and again in the memoir, which is why I say at one point, although the memoir was written as a public document, it was intended to be read 
by others. It's not a private diary. And everything within it has been uh, determined by the emperor to be okay, right? He's writing it himself. There's no doubt. But then these, these little bits of personality peek out in ways that he, can, he probably cannot have realized or recognized what's happening. And one of them is this uh, kind of self-pitying uh, uh, competition against his father and his son, his very successful son. He's thrilled to have a son who's a great warrior, uh, but then he also feels deeply threatened by it. And, and he seems to have good reason to, considering how in that final part of his reign, with the the period that you described as sort of the reign of, you know, the, the period of crises, he, he is facing that, that, that growing challenge from Haram culminating in a revolt. And yet, at the same time, you, you describe it. He wasn't quite the the wreck that that he is often portrayed as being in during this period, where he might. Some people might argue is being. And you, you cite, for example, people like Thomas Rowe, who are saying that oh, he's being dominated by, by Nur Jahan. That that's not really the case. Yes, it, of course, it's very hard to get at the power of Nur Jahan in this period. She clearly is very powerful. We have. Um, stories of people coming to court who are presented to her as well as to the emperor. Um, she's being treated as if she is co-regent, uh, which is really unusual. Uh, although Turco-Mongol heritage legacy would support uh, the idea that women have a, a viable um, role at the royal court, as political actors, women have a lot of agency among the elite uh, dynasty. So there's a degree to which this is simply that Mughal women have access to power should they choose to take it. But Nur Jahan is unique. There's no question uh, in having been given so much of a kind of uh, cooperative co-regent position. I see no evidence, though, that she is making the dominant political decisions in these years, although that has been the way the, uh, the relationship that is described by all of the great scholarship of the 20th century right <laughs> up until really recently. I mean, even books that came out in the last 10 years on the Mughals don't question that narrative that Noor Jahan is running the empire and Jahangir is sitting in the back room getting drunk. It's simply is not backed up by any of the sources. And we do have these uh, external reports that he's actively engaged, that he's you know, having his majalis, his, his uh, intellectual conversations in the evening. He's hunting every day. I don't know how you reconcile that with this narrative that he's a bedridden alcoholic mess, you know, for these last 10 years, which some argue. So, I think we have to return to the primary sources here and say, look, Noor Jahan was very powerful. There's no evidence that she was making uh, changes or uh, uh, determinations regarding political decisions. Uh, Jahangir was still very actively involved. And in fact, I would say a part of that is the reason for Shah Jahan's own effort at rebellion, because he begins to see Noor Jahan as a rival. This, this has been framed as 
uh, Noor Jahan behaving badly. And this is, it's really easy to see where that conversation begins, where that interpretation begins, because even um, uh, the writings, the chronicles of Shah Jahan's period immediately begin to say, look, poor Shah Jahan, he had to go into rebellion against his father because Noor Jahan was uh, his enemy. And because uh, she had figured out a way to get her daughter married to Shah Yar, who was uh, the younger brother of Shah Jahan, she was trying to seize power. Um, when in fact, the, the event that kicks off Shah Jahan's rebellion is his seizure of Noor Jahan's own territories uh, that she has gifted to her son-in-law, Shah Yar. He will send his armies to take control of that territory. Sharyar's fellows show up, and uh, Shah Jahan is in control. So there's a battle. People are killed. Word gets back to Jahangir, and he says, no, really, what's going on here? He writes to Shah Jahan and says, what are you thinking? And Shah Jahan, you know, blusters a bit. He has no real reason for what he's doing. And it's it's a power move, um, but it's instigated by Shah Jahan, perhaps because Jahangir has become has begun to be ill regularly. So it is clear that he's not going to live for a lot longer. And so the prince who wants to succeed him has to remain close to the center, has to remain uh, a viable contender. So that's part of. Uh, Shah Jahan's thinking. Uh, Noor Jahan's daughter, Ladli Begum, has married Shah Yar and is showing, and she is showing him favor. So there's a competitive issue here. Shah Yar is much younger, though. He has no really solid base of power, but he makes Shah Jahan nervous. Um, and like his father, Shah Jahan Khuram is bored and restless and irritated at continuing to serve as his father's assistant. So uh, all of these factors come together to, to push him into rebellion, but there's no evidence, in fact, that it's because of any particular act on the part of Noor Jahan that threatened him or uh, indicates some kind of illegitimate seizure of power on her part. This is classic Turko-Mongol succession practices having nothing to do with the with the queen uh with the co-regent nor jahan mm. well we've taken up a lot of your time but before we go could you tell us what you're working on now oh gosh i know, i go on don't i <laughs> i find the I, endlessly fascinating uh you know it's interesting because most of the time when you finish a book you say oh i never want to really think about that again i'm not <laughs> done thinking about this uh i find them so compelling um, my next book is actually based on a class that I've been teaching uh, for 12 years um, that I, I kind of came up with while I was still in graduate school in, in theory, and, and it's driven by the really excellent scholarship uh, that has been done for a long time on Mughal gardens, imperial pleasure gardens, which are a critical component of that kind of public performance of royalty and sovereignty. Um, art history has, has been the best 
I would argue, field in Mughal studies for a long time, and part of that is garden studies. So I began looking at Mughal gardens and how they play a political role. They're very explicitly political, manipulated landscapes. And then I began to explore how this is true in other uh, cultures and dynasties. And as I explored that idea, I recognized the global uh, uh, universality of this issue of uh, how to manipulate a landscape to put forward political claims. I expand that to social claims and aesthetic claims, but it's still inherently political. So I teach a class called Comparative Imperial Pleasure Gardens, which begins in ancient Iran, loops through the Islamic world, of course, uh, one of its primary uh, examples being the gardens of southern Spain, Al-Andalus, comes back to uh, Central Asia, India. The Ottomans have their own expression, which is completely unique and interesting. The Safavids, of course, represent the core. Then I take it over into a completely different uh, area, which is uh, China and Japan. Extraordinary expressions of manipulated landscape. Then I come back to look at Renaissance Italy and Northern Europe, and the study ends with the rise of public parks, which of course would imply the end of these imperial landscapes as uh, expressions of dynastic power and culminating in kind of Central Park and the emergence of this kind of 20th century understanding of our relationship with power and landscape. So I also look a lot at colonial landscapes and the political uses of um, the botanical garden. Uh, so it truly is a global history, and I teach it as a world history, um, but found it to be so endlessly interesting that I turned it into a book project, and I'm hoping that in the next three or four years I'll be able to wrap that up as well. Um, and it's another topic that I can talk about far too much, <laughs> uh, but it, endlessly interesting to me. Well, I do hope so that... So Imperial Pleasure Gardens. Well, I do hope when that book comes out that we have an opportunity to have you back on New Books Network so you can uh, talk about uh, that book some more, that subject some more. Thank you. I would love that. Uh, you know, every one of us loves being asked to talk about our work, and I'm clearly no exception. <laughs> well, thank we, you so much, Mark. Well, well thank you for, for taking some time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. Take good care. <laughs> 